Welcome to Episode 3, The Humility of Anthropology. Humble origins, it's a romanticized idea that is used to describe a rags-to-riches inspirational story. He came from humble beginnings, and look at him now. Origins are important, humble or not. It's good to know where you've come from because it can have a lot to do with where you're going. At least it should. Unfortunately, at least from my perspective, as it pertains to the Christian faith, we seem to have lost touch with our humble anthropology. In last week's podcast, I said that the treasure map of the wilderness is written on the fabric of humility. I kind of want to double down on this point and move the idea forward just a bit. Because I really think the whole concept of faith is written on the fabric of humility. I don't think it can be overstated. If you're going to be a truth seeker and a lover of the truth, pride, ego, and arrogance are not your friends. They will stunt and shortchange your growth and maturity. They will play mind games and tricks on us, convincing us to replace authentic spiritual truth with man-made traditions and ideas. Wisdom will quickly dissipate to knowledge. It's a tyrannical cycle. I don't know if you remember last week I talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. If anyone supposes that they know anything, they have not yet known as they ought to know. You know, it's not at all a coincidence that the tree of knowledge bears the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. The fruit from this tree was the doorway to becoming like God. But it didn't make them feel like God at all. It made them feel naked and afraid. And I suppose here's a tip for pursuing godliness. If your first action after eating godly superfood is to go hide in a bush, something probably didn't digest well. So much for that plan, right? But I'm not really sure we've given up on it. Knowledge is ultimately our biggest problem. At least it is for me. I always think I know more than I really do. Knowing and thinking that we have all the answers or that we've reached the pinnacle of knowledge is a shadow type of the original thread of Lucifer himself. Isaiah 14, 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And unfortunately, we still rely on knowing that we know. Here are a few examples. If you were to die tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven? Do you know that you know that you belong to Jesus? Do you know that the Bible is God's holy word and his love letter to you? You know, these are just a few fairly common Christian evangelism questions that revolve around knowing. It seems we just cannot stop eating from this tree. And it might surprise most church-attending believers to realize that knowledge isn't a big factor in God's judgment of character. God's not holding some cosmic IQ test to find out who the smartest believer is. In God's economy, the exchange rate is determined by humility and contriteness of heart. Listen to these few examples, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah 66, 1 through 
2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety and cares upon him because he cares for you. Proverbs fifteen thirty three: The fear of the Lord is the, is the instruction of wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Now you might surmise at this point that I'm against knowledge and education and learning. No, I'm not. But how, why, and ultimately what one does with the educational knowledge they seek and gain is critical to viable and flourishing relationships in the world. Knowledge is power. And that power can be aimed at noble pursuits and efforts, selfish pursuits and efforts, or too many times evil and malevolent pursuits and efforts. I think an issue is how knowledge is calibrated, regulated, and integrated into our lives. And faith makes it clear that humility is what helps and regulates that calibration. Because as we turn back towards our anthropology, we begin to see a much different form take shape than what we currently witness in American Christian culture. And I suppose it would be easy to dismiss the evolutionary changes in tradition and practice if they weren't so disconnected from the founder, Jesus himself. But as the years pass and the number of new churches and new expressions of the body of Christ proliferate, it begs the question, what happened and how did we get here? Is the iconic imagery of our founder crucified on a Roman cross suffering for the sins of the world authentically in line with the imagery that is projected by most brands and flavors of Christianity these days? If Jesus was once again manifested in the flesh in the present world, Would he find his faithful and humble people being doers of the word that's implanted in them? If he visited our towns and cities and surveyed the many options of churches and worship centers and houses of worship, which one would he pick to visit or to attend? What if he didn't pick any of them? How would we react to him if he rejected us? Yeah, these are wilderness questions. They require digging deep to uncover things buried long ago. They require us to go back to our origins and consider the words of Jesus, as well as Peter, Paul, and the other apostles, as if they were being read and spoken for the very first time. And it's not an easy thing to do. It requires the humility of repentance. The understanding that Things I once thought were sacred non-starters and not up for discussion now need to be re-examined and discussed. For let us not forget that we are to be transformed through the renewing of our mind, which means our minds can never be fully entrenched. We must be open to the newness and new life. Here are a few things that I discovered that I hope you'll take time to consider as I have looked through our Christian anthropology and origins. Did you know Jesus was Jewish? Yeah, that's right. He wasn't a Western Anglo-Saxon who crash-landed in Judea. 
He was part and parcel of the Jewish nation and Jewish culture. By his own admission, he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At the time Jesus walked the earth, it was clear that he felt his people had lost their way. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They transgressed the law of love by insisting their man-made precepts and traditions were followed and kept. Behavior matters in the kingdom of God. How people are treated matters in the kingdom of God. How we act and also react in the kingdom matters. It is why the whole of Scripture, prophetic utterance, and law can be summed up in the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. These two commandments center us in our daily approach to the faith, or at least they should. Our mandate is to love, love often, and love well. This is clear in the very teachings of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, a lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The words of Jesus are very odd when you compare them to the current church teachings on eternal life. Getting to heaven when you die is pretty important in the current evangelical church. It's one of the most important goals that a Christian can attain. And I get it. Heaven does sound like a primo destination. Who wouldn't want to go there? Just this morning, I was catching up on the news when a commercial came on asking the question, do you know if you're going to heaven or not when you die? And then it pointed out that you can know this if you'll go to their website and read through a script and pray a prayer or something close to that. But here's the troubling thing. The commercial nor the website is at all in touch with the words of the founder. It's not in touch with our anthropology. I mean, think about the story again. Jesus is confronted by a lawyer with essentially the same question that the commercial was asking. Are you going to go to heaven? How do you live forever? And to answer it, you have to look at both sides of the balance sheet, time and eternity, because it appears one side affects the other. Jesus allows the opportunity for the lawyer to answer his own question by basically asking him, hey, man, you're a lawyer. You know the law. What does it say? And the lawyer quotes these two great commandments. And at this point in the story, all eyes and ears are attuned to Jesus. And I think for good reason, because what he says next is going to be critical And Jesus simply says, you've answered correctly. Do this or do those things and you'll live. You know, if ever there was a time for Jesus to introduce a new way or a sinner's prayer or a back door or a loophole into eternal living, this was his big moment, but he didn't. Jesus, being a Jew, stuck with his own anthropology. He stayed connected with his own origin. He didn't make up a new way to gain life and living. He stuck with the law of love. He would have been a heretic if he hadn't. 
So I suppose the question is this. If the lawyer showed up in any of our church buildings or houses of worship and asked us the same question, would our answers sound anything like Jesus's? And I guess it suppose I guess it depends on which church and which tradition he visited, because there are lots of different answers to this question in our day and age. And hopefully you get my point. Then the point is simply this, if you don't, have we become so separated from the words of our master that we really don't know how to answer that question correctly? You know, and you might raise an objection with me. Come on, what difference does it make? We are where we are, and despite what I or anyone else thinks about the progressive development of the Christian faith, doesn't the existence of churches and places of worship do more good than harm? I mean, yeah, we may have an anthropologically broken faith, one that's out of touch with its origins and its founder, but it's better than no faith at all, right? I know these are honest and pragmatic questions. I can't deny that. And I also can't tell anyone why it should matter to them. What I can do is tell you why it matters to me. And then each listener can decide on their own if these reasons hold any water. Because for me, the standard of faith is not simply just to exist. In fact, the standards of faith set forth by Jesus and the apostles are kind of overwhelming if you take them seriously. You are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. Do not present the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God, as those who have been brought from death to life and present the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I could go on, but I won't. I think you get the point. These aren't verses that are call are calling you to do the best you can or calling me to just simply exist in faith. They are a metaphysical insistence calling us to a supernatural awakening a standard of daily living and excellence that centers itself on a sacrificial love. It's not surprising or shocking to me that in the face of these demanding requirements, we would create something less intimidating and less sacrificial, like going to a weekly worship service or attending a weekly Bible study or a small group. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that. I just know many years ago, it was better for us to leave all of it behind. And over the years, my family's been asked, why did you guys leave the ministry? Why did you guys stop attending church? Do you not believe in regular church attendance? Don't you know the Bible says that we should get together and not forsake the assembly? 
And you know, the answer to these questions are tricky. Not because we're afraid of the answer, but because the answer seems to lack humility, honestly, which is exactly what we don't want to happen. It seems like we're saying we're more spiritual because we're outside of the castle, outside of the building. But I'm going to take another run at it here in this podcast because I think it's important. In our time in the wilderness, we learned and realized that attending was no substitute for becoming. Attending church was no substitute for becoming the church. That the promise of Jesus is true and sure, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. It doesn't take a big building and a crowd. It just takes two humble pilgrims to come together seeking truth. My wife and I are at daily gatherings seeking and encouraging one another to grow stronger in our pursuit of truth and love. For us, the requirements of attending were quickly replacing the process of transformation towards the new creative order and formation of Christ in us. We realized really early that God wasn't giving out perfect attendance awards, but he did seem incredibly interested in our own individual spiritual formation. Church and church activity and ministry and all the things that we are involved in certainly allowed us to feel like we were living out the faith in a very substantive way. But we found out really quick that castle faith and castle activity is not a substitute for daily kingdom living. Ultimately, we had to face the humiliation of feeling and knowing that we were very far afield from the origins of our faith. So for the last 12 years, we've poured ourselves into the process of becoming daily disciples and followers. It hasn't been easy, but it's been easier. Very much easier than what we were doing before. For us, the truth has indeed set us free. Free to love, free to offer, and free to serve without a personal or religious agenda. We are free to embrace others in love because we've been loved well by God. We're not against church or community. We just live it and define it differently. Just last night, my wife and I experienced community with a young couple who will be getting married soon. We were invited to attend the wedding, but we're not going to be able to go. So my wife invited them over for dinner. It was a wonderful evening, good food, good drink, great discussion. And somewhere in the midst of the evening, something shifted and it became apparent that the conversation turned spiritual. Without going into a lot of detail, a spirit of love and charity showed up and we were able to speak truth and encouragement into each other's lives. You know, we may never have the chance to meet with this couple again. I hope we will, but it may never happen. But in that time, we had something impactful and beautiful for the kingdom. And all we had to do was be available and attentive to the spirit and presence of God. And yeah, I get it. This approach is nebulous and unorganized. It's often out of control, to be honest with you. But in this, we've learned the accuracy of Jesus' words. In John 3, 8, he said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Maybe we need to be a little more out of control. We don't get to decide when the Spirit wants to be active and work, working because it's always active and working. As the scriptures state, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's always the day. It's always the time. It can't be contained or held in a building or laid out on a piece of real estate. It can't be regulated or relegated to a day of the week, a date on a calendar, or a specific time on the clock. We our bodies are the building, the temple. We are the real estate, the earth that, the, that love most wants to occupy. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This kind of takes us full circle back to last week's episode about buried treasure. Because there's so much buried truth and treasure about the origins and anthropology of our faith. Truth that's been buried under tradition, man-made requirement, and just time. It's incumbent upon each of us who desire to take a serious look at how we've integrated our faith, to do it honestly and soberly, recognizing how easy it is to dismiss or minimize the truth because we've just been doing it a certain way for so long. Because something's truly transformational, I think, right, is on the line right now. Our culture is quickly changing and evolving into a quagmire of competing truth and opinion. And people of faith throughout history have always needed to be present, but this is our time right now to be present in every moment, in every space, to elevate and inspire the narrative in critical conversations. I found that in my own walk, as I offer myself to this process that I've called in Labro, God is constantly preparing and and improving me for the next moment and the next conversation. And each one I'm present for and engaged in, I'm more and more humbled by the experience. (laughs) Just as I'm humbled by this podcast and this opportunity to once again speak to you from my heart and tell you more about my journey in Labro. I thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.